Today's podcast is sponsored by Inner Professional Online Training Programs. With courses geared specifically for legendary leaders, Inner Professional provides an extraordinary catalogue of leadership and professional development programs unlike any online training you've experienced before. Hone your conscious and authentic leadership skills with peer group, networking communities, direct engagement with life experts, and a wealth of compelling, easy to engage on demand content. Learn more at kathleenmerkel.com slash innerprofessional. Hello and welcome to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. My name is Kathleen Merkel and I'm the host of the show. And together with a wide range of legendary leaders themselves and experts in the field of self-leadership, we are going to explore concepts and ideas that show you how you can move past your fears, negative self-talk and constant doubts in order to encourage you to becoming a legendary leader yourself with far more natural impact, influence and inspiration. So are you ready for it? Well, welcome once again to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Legendary Leaders podcast. I hope you're all well and that you have had a lovely summer. Perhaps you're still enjoying the last weeks of the summer and you had time to be and think and perhaps make some exciting plans for the near future. Who knows, right, what the future holds for us? And it can feel so exciting to think about it. My experience from talking to my guests and hearing about their stories and experiences, as well as from talking to uh, a few of my clients, shows, however, a slightly different world. A lot of the people I've been talking to uh, lately said, I'm going to go on my holiday, but I really struggle already to switch off. I struggle to not think about what's going to happen next. I struggle to find peace with all the ambiguity around us. I am constantly concerned about um, rising energy prices, not quite knowing what's to come next as to whether there's an extra restructuring process internally in the organization or whatever it is. And this ambiguity around us can be a, a massive opportunity for us. Right? If we have uh, kind of practiced how to form and strengthen this muscle of positivity and literally seeking those opportunities. If for whatever reason, it can be our upbringing, it can be past experiences, we do not apply that mindset just yet, then the question is, how can I do it? And today's guest is focused on positive psychology. Bobby Laporte is her name, and it is fantastic to have a chat with her about her experiences from leadership. She has been a leader herself for many, many years, and she supports leaders in particular, the C-suite today, uh, where she helps organizations and those leaders thrive through ambiguity. And we have had a very open conversation about the comfort zone, uh, how to take oneself out of the comfort zone. I would, would say that she is truly an artist in doing that because she does triathlons on a very regular basis. And even in a moment when she injured herself, she had to go through operations. She's already thinking about, okay, when I, can I get back and challenge myself? And she's going to share a few of those stories with you here today. But let me tell you a little bit more about Bobby. She's the founder and CEO of Bobby Laporte and Associates, which is an advisory firm providing science-based real-world leadership solutions for the volatile road ahead. 
And her firm serves Fortune 500 companies, global organizations, and truly promising startups. And before founding her business, I mentioned it already, Bobby served in various uh, C-suite roles herself as a CEO, as a COO or CMO in several Fortune 50 companies, including, for example, IBM and General Electric, as well as United Healthcare. And she has an MBA from Harvard and a master's in positive leadership and strategy from IE in Madrid, and is indeed currently training for her seventh Ironman triathlon. When she is not busy working out, um, working with leaders, then she is looking after her two golden retrievers, Posey and Nilla. And they often accompany her on the training outings in the Bay Area. It's been a fabulous conversation with Bobby, a very authentic, as I like to call it, just real chat about her experiences, about ambiguity, positivity in particular, and the curveballs life throws into our ways from time to time and how we can deal with them. Uh, so in, enjoy this conversation as always. Let us know what you thought about it and do get in touch with either of us uh, if you have any questions, if you need any support, if you have completely different views on our conversations. I, I love to be challenged as well. So go ahead, enjoy and speak to you in a moment. Hello, hello, Bobby. How are you today? I'm great, Kathleen. It's great to see you. Thank you so much for having me join you. I'm excited. feel very privileged to be part of the conversation. Well, thank you for being here. It has been a long road to get to where we are. And Yes, and it has been. It, it gave me uh, even more opportunity to, you know, read about you and your work and your background. And uh, I don't know how we cover all of the topics that I have on my list here today in this podcast, <laughs> but I will do my best. First of all, it would be great to learn a little bit more about you and the work you are actually doing. So how are you helping the people around you? My clients are um, pretty much technology companies here in Silicon Valley. And, you know, although I think our world is sort of spinning everywhere, but here it's a particularly fast paced. And I think over the last couple of years, they've been challenged more than ever, even before the pandemic with the pace of change and you know, challenges to them as leaders and not being able to rely on, you know, what they've learned or done in the past. So my, my focus is on using my experience as an executive, but also science-based practices from positive psychology and neuroscience and behavioral science to help them really change their mindset about how they become more effective leaders in this time of change. So that's really been the, the focus of the work. And I think because they're so busy, and because the practices I use and the approaches are really practical and rooted in science, they're able to try things that allow them to get through like continuous change or, you know, another reorg or a different boss or challenges to their functional knowledge or whatever it is so that they can make that incremental step. But they see the change and the impact right away. They build on that. And so that, you know, they're really able to accelerate their results and to get to being effective leaders during a very challenging time faster than their peers. Wow. It sounds so easy when you are describing. I know it does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not though. Yeah, it's not. When you talk about effective leaders, what does an effective leader entail? Well, it's interesting because there's, um, you know, I, there's effective versus what I'd say is efficient. So if I can, let me sort of give you an example. So when I grew up in the business world and many of my clients did, 
you know, there was this expectation that you were going to lead from a position, number one, from a from positional authority. Mm -hmm. So you had a certain executive level and with that came influence and authority. And also because you had functional knowledge, you had domain knowledge, you had accomplished, you know, so many things. And so people looked up to you and respected you for that. And you got things done, but mostly you got things done by telling people what to do. And that was certainly the case in my first like 10 years working at IBM. I mean, you know, our bosses would say, this is what we're going to do. And you would just go do it. I mean, you never questioned it because they were the experts. That's all changed in the last couple of years. So while I would call that efficient leadership right now, the leadership model that I work with people on is very different. And it's really, it's not based on functional knowledge or your accomplishments. It's really based on internal self-knowledge and self-awareness. And it's based on the ability to be vulnerable and to, to ask for help, to acknowledge that you don't have the answers to get things done through others, to say, let's figure out a way to do this, to be able to reflect, to be innovative and creative, and to really crowdsource from all the people around you, their skills and talents, to reach the outcome that you want to reach as a leader. And that's what I call effective leadership. Mm -hmm. It's saying it's not you, it's not about you anymore, it's about the people around you, the people that work for you, your peers, other people in the enterprise that you can tap into to be able to get done what you want to get done, particularly you know, as you and I have talked with all this ongoing change. So that's how I define effective. And funnily enough, I worked with a group yesterday and two of the individuals said to me, uh, one of them actually said to me, I really don't have time to, first of all, seek the understanding expertise of other people. We need to get stuff done because it's faster paced than ever before. And the other person said, I get the point contextually about there are more than one experts in the room and I am not yes. necessarily the one expert. I still simply don't manage to hold myself back and to actually listen to other people first and truly and authentically listen to them because you want to understand, yes. not wait for your own expertise to play a role in the conversation. So how, how can leaders manage those situations I just described? As I said, it's very tempting and everybody is moving so quickly. It's very tempting when people come to you and say, well, we have this problem. And you say, okay, well, this is what we should do. I mean, that's the fastest way yeah. to be able to get to fix something, but by responding that way and fixing what's in front of you, as opposed to stepping back, like the other person said, you know, stepping back and reflecting and saying, all right, so let's take a look at what's going on here. Where have we seen this before? What resources do we have at our disposal? You know, in my view, one of the most important things a leader can do is to build capacity in others to be able to solve problems on their own. I mean, that's a leader's responsibility is to be able to create the environment and to make it possible for people to be successful on their own. Does that take a little bit more time? It might take a little bit more time, but it's not days worth of time. It's really taking a couple of minutes to reflect and say, all right, let's figure this out together. Yeah. You still reach the outcome that you want, but it's probably a better outcome because you've involved the people who work for you in that process. You're asking them what they think. You're saying, let's figure this out together. And you're allowing them to use the skills and assets that they bring to the situation and to deploy those potentially in different ways and to amplify the things they do well versus just basically giving them direction and delegating and say, let's go do this. So, and again, it goes back to that self-awareness. So I always say to leaders, just take a few minutes and think about how can you tap into all the people around you and know that by doing that, you're building a more sustainable leadership model and that you're helping people create outcomes down the road instead of them coming back to you. Because when you become the person that they come to to say, how should we go about this? What should we do? Then you become the bottleneck 
you know, you become the, you know, sort of the, the obstacle in the whole process. And it requires, besides being self-aware, it requires giving up your ego a little bit because you say, hey, they came to me and, you know, that means I'm valued and I'm relevant and I have the answers. And in reality, none of us have the answers. I mean, nobody has the answers anymore, not based on the environment that we're in. So that's the first place I start when I'm working with leaders is how can I get them to understand that this self-reflection and self-awareness is really important? And, and what is the trigger or thing that will get them to stop before they just react and say, let's go do this? You know, what is the visual cue or what is the mental cue or what is the, the practice or technique that allows them to actually stop, reflect, develop perspective, and then and as a result, develop options instead of automatically going to the thing they've always done? Because the thing we've always done in our environment right now isn't necessarily a thing that's going to work because our world has changed. And you mentioned so nicely your experience at IBM, where it was all about efficient leadership right. in the first 10 years, right? And that right. in particular in the last two years, things have changed. I always wonder how employees or uh, direct reports of those leaders see the change and perceive that change. Because when we have an efficient leader, we may be used to that. We are not questioning it. But suddenly the world around us changes and we're like, oh, okay, right. something changes. How was that for you? Right. I think that's what happens is often, and I, I write about this in the book about how people start to see the ripple effects of uncertainty. Like the leader might not see it, but the people that work for you are seeing that you don't have the answers. They're seeing that you are unsure. They're seeing that you lack the confidence, right? And even some leaders will just like bury themselves. They'll just basically go away and say, you know, I don't really want to be in front of these people. I don't want to be there because they're going to find out, right, that I don't have the answers. And that can be very scary if you feel like you're deriving your authority, you know, because of your functional knowledge as opposed to your ability to be reflective and to see how you can solve problems through others. So people on the team see that. And it's, it's a touchy situation because if you let that go too long eventually people are going to totally lose their confidence and you, and you will have no credibility with them as opposed to saying to them look you know i have never seen this before i don't really have the answer i'm sure we can figure it out together and so if you get to that point where you've you've really sort of removed yourself from the people that work for you because you're afraid they're going to find out they don't have the answers that's when you're really in the danger zone because people will get it i mean you know they they see through that. They know that you're just, you know, you're pushing them off. You're giving them an answer that doesn't necessarily reflect uh, a solution or an answer that's going to fit in this environment that we're in. So now you mentioned the environment on numerous occasions. And when you yes. said that Silicon Valley is <clears throat> even at a higher space, operating at a higher space, then I was like, how, how quicker can it go? How quickly yeah. can we run? Because the world seems to me so much more complex and ambiguous and unforeseeable to a large extent as well right so um, when you speak about the uncertainty what's the kind of uncertainty you are referring to and that leaders in your perspective perceive at the moment as well well I like to call it unrelenting uncertainty and I think it's very different from you know like big changes we saw like in the last decade you know the recession in 2008 or even with the pandemic I just think there's so much going on in our world, you know, from an economic, a geopolitical, a cultural view. I think this uncertainty is very different because it's broad. It goes through all sectors, you know, of our world and not just professionally, but personally. It's structural. It's always shifting. And the, the thought that you're going to come back to some place of stability or that things are going to go back to the, to the same they were in any way, I think is really 
sort of a false hope on the part of leaders. So it's just, it's just continuing. It's like, you know, when we have an earthquake, you know, it's those aftershocks that just continue. And I think, you know, we're seeing that now. I mean, even post pandemic, you know, people thought they were going to get back to work. Things would be normal. It's not the same. And now we have wars and now we have an economy, at least, you know, globally, we have challenges in the economy. We just certainly have economic issues here in the U.S. I think this is the first time in a decade that Silicon Valley leaders and technology uh, company leaders are starting to pull back, you know, in terms of hiring, spending money, you know, capital spending. And I, I think it's it's just the organic way that our world is is uh, set up now. A colleague of mine a few weeks ago said to me, you know, our planet just hasn't gotten a break. <laughs> and, you know, I think that's true. Yeah. And so that's why I think it's very different. It's not just, oh, we have a recession or we have, you know, we have a, companies that are p- pulling back. It, it goes across every single aspect of our world and it continues to shift and change. And so this uncertainty is really the state that we're in. It's not something that happens and then becomes ameliorated and we get more stable. It's just basically the way we live. And I don't know that it's much worse here. I tend to think that because, you know, a lot of cutting edge leadership practices and business practices come out of Silicon Valley that, you know, things tend, tend to move more quickly here. But I don't think that's as much the case as it was a few years ago, because I hear from clients, people all over the world, that it's just, you know, it's just, it's just nonstop. Yeah, I, yeah. I hear the same and I see far more exhaustion around me. I, I spoke to someone today who said, I don't know why my energy levels just seem to be so low. And yeah. he realized for himself that not just a pandemic, but managing all the uncertainty and the pace in business plus family and so on and so forth without him giving himself a break. Right. We really got to him. Yeah. Yeah. There's no question that over the last two or three years, everybody's been experiencing such a much higher cognitive load. I mean, we're always under stress, but the stress of COVID, you know, what it meant for people in terms of like, you know, people that they knew or how they had different family obligations and all the uncertainty about, you know, we're coming out of it. No, we're not. Yes, we are. No, we're not. We're going back to the office. Yes, we are. No, we're not. And that cognitive load is something I try to help clients manage as well. I mean, what are the things you really have control over? What are the things that you have any agency in where you can actually do something about and the other things you just have to sort of let go? What are the things that you can do from a neuroscience standpoint to build capacity in yourself and to build you know, recovery and to activate the part of your brain that's responsible for you know, human flourishing so that you're not always in this stress mode? And it has a, it has a really negative effect on leaders in particular, because they are in this position and they're just, like you said, they're exhausted. They just have kind of, you know, run out of options. And I see people coming out of that now, but it's a slow process because there continues to be so much uncertainty. So it's really, there's a lot of kind of like this, I said, I go back to self-awareness and self-care and are you really, you know, really thinking about yourself as an individual and what is the impact that you're having on the people around you? Absolutely. Yeah, it's exhausting. It, it, it is exhausting. And people then say, yeah, I'm looking after myself. I practice self-care. I um, took two days off today and went for a nice coffee. And that's a lovely start. Yes, it's a good right? start. But it probably requires more, more sustainable work in terms of self-care and shifting the mindset and perhaps some of the practices we, we keep doing or changing some of the habits we have learned over years and years yes. and years that might not be helpful anymore in this world. 
And you highlighted neuroscience practices based on neuroscience. I, I know you are working on the basis of positive psychology as well. So when you're thinking about or when you're talking about activating the side of the brain that helps us flourish, could you share some practical methods and tools with the audience so that they can perhaps try some of those themselves? Sure. Well, so just as background, so we have this two neural, this is like, and I'm not a neuroscientist, believe me, not any stretch, but uh, I think people probably know this. So there's two neural networks that we work with. One is the sympathetic nervous system, which is really, which that's sort of, you know, called the like the stress mode, you know, and that's the mode where, you know, when you hear people talk about how their amygdala got hijacked. So it's based on the amygdala. It allows you to be very focused, but it doesn't allow you to you know, kind of have like a broader, more creative, more strategic view. And we live in that naturally, probably like 80% of the time, because that's just the way we're wired. You know, I mean, our, our ancestors, you know, we're wired to like survive and to like find something to eat. And so we're naturally in the mode of being protective of being cautious of wondering what's coming next. And so it's even harder now and has to be more intentional for people to take themselves out of the sympathetic nervous system and activate the parasympathetic nervous system. And the parasympathetic nervous system is the, is the thrive system that allows us to activate the part of the prefrontal cortex, the part of our brain that's responsible for human flourishing. So when we activate the prefrontal cortex, we're more likely to be inspired, to be creative, um, to be able to problem solve, to see what's possible. I mean, it visually opens up our, it opens up our field of vision, you know, physiologically, psychologically, it has lots of benefits. And one of the ways, the simple ways to do that through a practice in positive psychology is just to activate positive emotions. So we know from studies that if you activate a positive emotion in yourself, like if you express appreciation or gratitude or love or hope or some positive emotion, that activates the prefrontal cortex and it actually impacts your cognition and actually like builds brain cells, but it puts your brain in a position to be able to see what's possible, which is really hard to do when you're in this stress mode. So even using language like, you know, you know, what I appreciate. So I'll have clients in meetings just say, here's what I appreciate about you. Here's what I'm grateful for. Or in their staff meetings to kick off their staff meetings and say, let's go around the room quickly and talk about one good thing that happened to you since the last time we met. Or what's one thing that you appreciate? And when you do that, that language we know from doing functional MRIs on people and from, from positive psychology, it activates that part of your brain. And it actually like raises the energy level in the room and it makes it possible for people to, to be inspired and to see possibilities as I, as I talked about, you know, when you're in a mode where someone comes to you and says, oh my God, this is a problem. And you, you go right into fix it mode because your, your sympathetic nervous system is, oh my God, this is a problem, we need to fix this. Yeah. As opposed to stopping and saying, well, let's take a look at what resources we have here. So just using that language can, can make a big difference because it activates that part of your brain. The other thing that I think is really cool, uh, there's a concept called positivity resonance, where when you do that, so if I say, you know what, Kathleen, I really appreciate you inviting me to be part of your podcast and also being flexible and, you know, the kind of challenges we had and being scheduled. So I'm activating the part of my brain that's responsible for thriving. The mirror neurons on your brain are doing the same thing. So this positivity actually becomes infectious, you know, in a good way. So it not only impacts you, it impacts, impacts the person that you're talking to. So you're able to create that same sense in their brain. Um, and it's really simple just by using, you know, the language of, you know, I, here's what I appreciate about you, or here's what I'm grateful for. 
or I'm thankful for this, or I'm hopeful that this is going to happen. So even that simple language can make a huge difference. It immediately made me feel calmer. And <laughs> yeah, seriously, oh no, that's wrong. And, and I could literally um, sense or picture that infectious mode. Um, yes. You know, you can really pass it on to your colleagues and to your peers and yep. give a more positive sense. Yeah. And it's very simple to do. And people say, oh, it's kind of woo-woo. It's like, look, <laughs> no, no, and I know I have lots of clients now who'll do that. That's how they start their meetings. And so when they say that's woo-woo, I hear it quite often as well. That's woo-woo. Yeah. That's just fluffy. I'm not going to do yeah, that. Oh, that's not going to yeah. last, right? <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So, no, it's not woo-woo. <laughs> I would assume you then just invite them to practice it. But what's happening there? What are their realizations? Well, they, you know, they, I did this, I had this offsite I had this week when I kicked off the meeting, we always do like a little icebreaker and I do this thing called the ABCs of gratitude. And I have a bag of kids letter blocks, you know, A through Z letter blocks. And so I, I start with the executive sponsoring and I pick out a letter. I say, tell us, tell us something that you're grateful for that starts with this letter. And, you know, you see people pause and then you learn something about people. It's not always work related. It might be something personal. Um, and then people smile and the energy in the room comes up and, you know, I talk to him about the neuroscience behind gratitude. And I think, at least from what I see physically, I mean, it sets the tone for the conversation that I'm trying to have with them for this particular group is about, you know, how can they become a more cohesive, better performing team? And because I'm asking them this question and it's activating that part of the brain, you know, they should be more open to seeing what's possible and to being inspired and being creative. And I think, you know, this particular session I had was, was successful in part because of that. But people will just tell me, this one group that I was with this week, the executive who was sponsoring it, she said, you know, when we have our staff meetings, she said our CEO is super intense and we, we get these staff meetings, he starts right out with, okay, let's go around the room and let's go do an update. And she's always like, well, just, can we just stop and sort of check in with people? How's everybody doing? Did you enjoy the weekend? You know, what's what's going on with you? And she said it's made a big difference in terms of people building trust, getting to know each other, you know, just sort of like, you know, a little bit of a before you start going into like the, you know, like the heavy lifting of all the things yeah. that are going on in the company. She volunteered that before I had even suggested this practice. So I think people see, they see the benefit of it. It's just, as you said, it's being intentional and thoughtful about continuing to do it because when you get you know, super stressed and there's a million things going on, it's really easy to fall back into that autopilot mode that I write about and talk about a lot. It's just, you just default to what you know, what's comfortable, what's easy, and that's not going to get you where you want to go. And most likely it's going to default to a solution that may have worked a year ago yeah. or six months ago, but probably isn't going to work now. So it's that self-discipline to stop and say, I'm not going to like autopilot react and do what I normally do. I'm going to take a little bit of time and think about what are some of the other options that might create something more generative, more sustainable. I'd say in a situation like this, it also requires the people to speak up about it. So if they feel the pressure right away when the CEO yeah. walks in and says, okay, let's share the update. Yeah. It's important that as in this situation, there's one person who says, hold on a minute. Yeah. Right. And as yeah. to whether they do it in front of the group or right. face to face and personal and private with him, it's a different story. But being feeling safe enough to speak up is important here too exactly and i think she does i mean she has a good relationship with him but some people would just you know they would be afraid to do that yeah and so that's where i think we when i work with executives in this mode i i like to have them think about how can you start to like bring the other people along with you 
right? So how can you like begin to like use this with your peers, right? And get them to see what's possible. How do you build this contagion with your team? How do you transfer this confidence and this way of working to the people on your team so they can see what's possible? Yeah. Uh, that's where the real, I think, benefit and the real magic comes in. When they start to do that, the team sees it, you know, they start start to work with the team to say, here's the journey I've been on as a leader. Here's how I, here's the practice I use. These are the things I try. And then for the people on the team to start to do that and see the power of it. Yeah. And also it can be quite vulnerable, right? For the team to build more connection yes. into the leaders to yeah. be so transparent about this is what I'm practicing. I'm learning. I might have made mistakes <clears throat> in the past. I find that incredibly powerful when someone is doing that. And it's, it's challenging for a leader to be vulnerable mm -hmm. like that because again, you know, because of the environment, again, I talk about the environment that we're in, you know, they're afraid that their team is going to see them as weak, that their peers are going to go, oh, this person said that they need help, they don't have the answer, you know, and that then that somebody will jump on that and say, well, they're obviously not up to the task, you know, which is not the case. But yeah. um, so it does, it does require some courage. And it requires a little bit of experimentation. But the people who are trying it, I think are really seeing, are seeing a lot of benefit. And it's fun, it's fun for me to see that, for me to see them grow and then for, to be able to like help cascade that down to their team. You mentioned your book um, a couple of times, and I think it's, it's very, very valuable to dive a little bit deeper into your book as well. When the curveballs keep coming. Yes. When I, when I heard the title for the first time, I was like, oh, what's that about, right? <laughs> <laughs> the curveballs in the sense of uh, facilitation, let's throw in some curveballs that teams need to write. Yeah. What is the book about in a nutshell? It's about, I mean, the title is When the Curveballs Keep Coming. So it's really about how leaders, it's a playbook for how leaders continue to, to deal with, you know, as I said, what I've called unrelenting uncertainty. And so I like the term curveballs because people tend to use that a lot and it has a very visual sort of, you know, meaning to it, but it's about how do they build the self-awareness? You know, what are the skill sets they need? What are the mindset shifts? You know, what are the things, you know, leaders need to do differently as you and I have been talking to be able to, you know, build the right, skills and mindset and the right approach so that they can they can competently and confidently deal with continuing curveballs because that's really the for me that's not just the visual that's actually what's happening in our environment you know something every day i mean a client or somebody will send me a note and say oh another curveball our yeah, ceo got fired or another curveball i now have responsibility for these three things or another curveball like three people on my team resigned so i had been doing this uh, kathleen even before the pandemic it kind of evolved through the, the consulting and the executive coaching work I was doing, as well as what I was learning from my Ironman training. And again, applying to the environment here in Silicon Valley, it was just, there's just so much change and so much stuff going on. And so I started thinking about how do I help people navigate through uncertainty? So that was something I've been doing for a couple of years before with some of these same practices. And then when COVID hit, some of my colleagues called me and said, I mean, this is like the curveball of all curveballs. You've got to get this down on paper. So I started to outline sort of what, what, like the business case really for dealing with uncertainty. You know, what is the macro environment that we're operating in look like? What is, what's happening at the micro level and organization? You know, what are sort of some of the rules of the road, things that leaders need to know because this is a very different world than the one they've, they've been growing up and leading in. So I was fortunate to be able to interview nine executives that I've worked with and to get their stories. So their stories are in there, you know, my suggestions about, you know, the kind of some of the assumptions and attitudes that leaders need to jettison 
to be able to make this trip. Um, examples from my training. I mean, it's less than 100 pages. I wanted to make it very approachable. I didn't want it to be this like big tome. I wanted it to be something that people could get into. Look at the examples. There's questions on the end about, you know, if you're doing X, you might want to think about doing Y. And so I'm hoping that, you know, it provides a real practical sort of approach and a playbook for leaders, things that they can go in and look at and pick out and they can continue to put into practice that will make a difference for them. So with everything you have learned and all those tools that you put into this uh, playbook, yeah. when you think back about your experience as a leader in organizations, right? You spent 20 years, if I've read that correctly. Um, <laughs> more than that, an, yep. More than that even. I, I sometimes wonder, is there anything you would have loved to know at this point of time? Ha. Huh. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because I talk in here about one of the, um, I talk about the three shifts that leaders need to make. And one of them that I talk about is being able to like move from, you know, your, this uh, sort of the old model, which is, you know, your success is based on your domain, your functional knowledge and your accomplishments to a model where it's more about internally, you know, you, you being vulnerable and admitting that you don't have the answers and, uh, you know, relying more on that sort of model of leadership, vulnerable, you know, inquisitive, creative. And um, I would have to say that in, you know, in my corporate career growing up, I was very much the former, you know, I mean, my career advanced because I had, you know, functional knowledge, I had accomplishments, you know, um, largely because of the old model. And I would also say, you know, my clients, we laugh about this. I mean, I am somebody who very much does not like like self-examination <laughs> and like self-awareness. I mean, when you ask me, you know, how do you know, and I like, um, and I have to actually answer this question now. Right. So I think if I had known that that was going to be an emerging leadership model and that those qualities of being self-aware and admitting that you don't have the answers and being vulnerable, if I had known about those earlier in my career, I think, I don't know, it would have made it would have made a difference. I mean, I think it would have made a difference in how I thought about my success. And I think it would have made a difference in some of the people that I was working with. That to me would be, would, have, would have been the biggest learning to have. And I think that still remains for many of the people I work with their biggest challenge particularly for the women executives I work with, it's like, well, you know, if I, I mean, I'm really good at what I do. And if I just work hard, that should be enough. No, mm. nope, nope, nope. That's not the case anymore. And I think I thought that also, well, if I just work harder than everybody, you know, that, that should be enough. So, you know, that's the thing that was a struggle for me and, and, it, and continues to be a struggle for me to ask for help, to, to be vulnerable. It's just not, it's not natural for me. So I have empathy when I'm working with other people who are having challenges with that as well. Huh. It, uh, I actually took a deep breath because I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm not alone with that. Um, yeah. my, uh, it's the number one challenge for me, asking for help. And I can't yeah. count the people anymore who said, say to me, you need to ask for help. And yes. it's still such a massive hurdle to overcome. And I was just wondering, is that something that's very female specific? So from your experience, do you see that more in women than in men? Yes, absolutely. Although men too, but I think more in women because we're afraid that if we ask for help, then we're going to be seen as, you know, not as talented. We're going to be seen as not as relevant. We're going to be seen as weak, right? I mean, men can ask for help. I don't think they quite feel that way, but I think it's definitely more for women. But I think that's also the reason because that's a real pillar, I think, of being a successful executive. I think if women can do that, then they're going to have more success than some of their male peers 
because men are they're still going to come up with this command and control and this is the way it should be done i'm the boss and you know all that kind of stuff and i think that's just not going to cut it and, and and that's just not going to survive as a leadership approach people aren't going to you know they're not going to sit for it so i think women are in a much better position in some ways to be able to make this journey to this new leadership model that's really going to thrive in an uncertain world but yeah it's really hard and uh I think one of the one of the things I tell people is um, when you ask someone for help, that's acknowledging that they have a particular expertise or a gift that you maybe perhaps don't have. That in and of itself, I think, is a real benefit. I mean, that's another way to write to like turn your brain on to something different is to say, you know, I'm really I'm struggling with X. And I've noticed, Kathleen, that this is something that, you know, you do pretty well. I would love to learn more about how you do that. I would love to get your ideas, right? And, and that just like acknowledges the other person as a gift that you see. And that almost in and of itself is worth doing because it makes that person feel good and acknowledges that they have value. And you know, we all want to be acknowledged and appreciated. But it's still an obstacle. And, you know, I, I don't have magic answers other than you just need to try it. Yeah, and um, try to experiment with it and see what's happening. I, I absolutely love doing that because it gives me a relief. I have the chance to learn something new, something yes. that's important yeah. for my role. Yeah. But I immediately notice a shift in that relationship as well for all the reasons Probably. you've mentioned. Yeah. 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 Because that yeah. person you said, right, they feel appreciated, they feel yep. they are a gift. Yeah. And th there is this lightness right and right away. They smile at yeah. you and they're like, of course, and yeah. they feel helpful. And it yeah. does something with people. Yes. And it's brilliant. So everybody who says, I don't have time to build deep relationships and so on. These are the opportunities, the moments in our day-to-day -day we have where we can shift relationships right away. And it's so there's just so much that we don't know. You know, there's no way, I mean, even like 20 years ago when I was, you know, working in big companies, nobody had all the answers, but today there's no way. No one person has the answers, the skill set, the value contribution to solve the issues. I mean, you have to really, it's another thing to acknowledge, everybody on your team has, has a value contribution to make to the outcome you're trying to accomplish. And so just encouraging everybody to speak up, to tap into each other, to ask for help. And it just does shift the relationship, as you said. So I'm glad to hear that. That's nice to hear. Yeah. In your work, you're also talking about, and it wasn't the Sonoma um, TEDx talk, especially about loss. What did you say? Balance loss with possibility. Possibility, yeah. And and I loved it. But I also wanted to understand it even more. So in particular, when we are faced by this continuous change, complexities right. that go beyond anything we have probably experienced a few years ago. How am I going to balance those two, loss and possibility? Loss and possibility. So it goes back to what I was talking about earlier about defaulting, you know, reacting versus responding, defaulting to autopilot. Because when we're presented with a change or what we perceive as a loss, whether it's like a relationship that's not going well or a raise we didn't get or something that happened at work, our natural reaction, again, because of how we're wired, is to say, oh, crap, you know, another, like, you know, another problem, you know, another loss, you know, I go, well, whatever, I guess I'll just chalk it up and I'll just sort of like, you know, chug on. And because that's just, you know, we're in this stress mode naturally, but we're in it even more now. So the, the shift is from looking at it as a loss to, again, going to this, let me pause for a minute and look at this and say, okay, what can I make from this? Right? Where are the possibilities here? But you can't do that if you're in react mode 
if you're always going back to, but you know, okay, so it's a problem. Well, screw it. You know, I guess I'm never going to be able to fix this. I'm never going to be able to get promoted. My team is never going to be able to perform. And when you default to that react, then you're never going to be able to see what's possible. And that's why I think uncertainty, I say it's a gift because it allows us, you know, because there's so much of it allow, it gives us the opportunity to stop instead of reacting to say, all right, let me take a look at what's going on here. You know, what are the possibilities in this situation where I can build capacity in my team, where I can help them deploy their strengths in a different way, where I can have a more generative conversation. What can I do to make myself better? And I use examples from my training, you know, where, um, I don't, I don't know if I did this in the, I think I may have in the TED talk, it's definitely in the book, where, you know, there's been examples where in some of my races, you know, where, I mean, we spend like nine months, almost to a year training. And in one of my, my first Ironman races, and I was like really nervous. I was afraid I wasn't going to, you know, I wasn't going to finish. And, you know, I'm always like the slowest person in the water. And I'm usually like the one, you know, I'm, I'm one of the last ones to finish. And so I get into the water you know, an Ironman race, it's a mass start. So there's like 2,000 people in the water. And when the gun or the cannon goes off, you start swimming. And so it's like combat swimming. There's, you know, people everywhere. And so on one of my first races, I had got my goggles kicked off, which happens actually frequently, but I didn't know. And so this is the beginning of my race. And I'm thinking, now what? You know, and this is the loss versus possibility. So I had learned that I have, you know, strength beyond what I thought I had. I had learned that I could tap into you know, kind of dig deep and tap into my ability to manage myself through challenging situations, to persevere. And I could have just said at that point, I mean, I can't swim two and a half miles without goggles. And I may have just said, you know what? That's it. That's fate. Just the way it is. You know, that's the way my day is going to go. Today's not my day. I'll just get out of water and I'll have to some other. But I had to look at that instead of looking at that and saying, that's a loss. That's just fate. I have no way to control that to be able to say, okay, so how can I turn this into a possibility? You know, what can I do to keep going? You know, what is the solution here that allows me to continue on my, on my path, right? So I figured out a way to be able to finish the swim and then that got me on to the other parts of the race. But it's very easy for us just to feel defeated and just to resign and give in and give up as opposed to saying, well, wait a minute, you know, what can I make of this? And I said, that's where the loss versus possibilities anyway. And I learned a lot about that through my training and that's where, you know, that comes in. And I use that example a lot because it's very visual and people get it. And then they understand, oh, this is a way for me to maybe make something of this. And I remember really well the picture you showed and you just see the heads in the water. Yeah, and yeah. The waves and that was it. Yeah. And I thought, pure chaos around you. Yes, right? and pure chaos. people bumping into you right front and center. And you're yeah. like, what the yeah. heck is going on? Why am I yeah. doing this actually? And, and that's my question because this wasn't your last Iron Man. You've done six so far? Yeah, so that was my first one, which is very, uh, you know, it's, it's a scary time, you know, unless you, until you finish, you never know if you're going to be able to finish. And so that's not a great way to start, <laughs> to start, right? And, you know, and I had trained for a year and, you know, I traveled across the U.S. to do this race and I had lots of people that supported me and I'm in the water going, now what am I going to do? I can't just give up. I mean, if I had given up, people would have said, oh, we understand, you know, you could, you know, but I just said, I can't give up. You know, I have to find a way through this. And so I, I also, I think I use this in the TED talk. I use the analogy, sort of taking these situations, sort of stripping them for parts, right? So it's like, okay, so here's a situation. This is the bad part, right? This could be considered a loss. I don't want to be defeated. What are the positive things I can take from this? You know, what are the things I can do? What are the things I can learn myself? 
What are the skills I can build with my team? How can I repurpose something that's going on here at work and use it in a different way instead of just basically saying, well, that project is off the table. I'll just throw that away and we'll start all over again. Or that person's never going to make it. And that's another sort of way to look at loss versus possibility. Really, really powerful. What was your motivation to uh, start Ironman? Oh, I was uh, running a, t a healthcare tech startup in the Valley and somebody, in um, a guy that worked for me was training for a marathon. So I supported him. And then I was, as I said, I was traveling and I, you know, I had gained weight and I really wasn't, you know, it was like the worst situation for me. And so I just said, you know, I need to do something to get back into, into shape. You know, this is not a good situation. And I grew up a total non-athlete. I mean, I never did any sports growing up. I have no, and I'm still, you know, everything I do now in terms of my athletic endeavors, I have to work really hard for. So I decided to train for a marathon. So I trained for the San Francisco Marathon and I finished that and I did another marathon. I kind of got the bug. And then triathlon was becoming very big here in the Bay Area. So then I trained for a short distance triathlon. And, you know, and at that point I didn't even own a bike and I hadn't been swimming for a long time. And so that was an experience. And then I forget how, but somebody said, well, you know, there's a group here in the Bay Area. They trained for the Ironman. And I was just like, no way. That's crazy. Who would do that? You know, and I just, um, but it was, you know, Kathleen was one of those like, wow, one of those like giant like challenges. And I thought, wow, if I could do this, I mean, I would be in such great shape. I could say I was an Ironman. You know, I just looked at it as like this big challenge to put myself through. I mean, you know, as I said in the TED Talk, little did I know how much pain and suffering was going to be involved. But I learned so much in that training for that first one about my capabilities, about my vulnerabilities, about how I needed other people to support me, about, you know, pushing myself. And uh, as I was training for that, some of the executives that I was working with said to me, there's something different about you. And I said, like, really, that's interesting. So they saw a different confidence. They saw a different self-awareness, you know, which, um, you know, as I said, I'm not really good at. And so then I started, you know, after I finished my first one, I decided I was going to do more. And then I started studying the relationship between endurance sports and leadership. Um, and so I started applying that to the work I was doing with executives. And then I, as I would do more races, I would learn more. And then uh, four years ago, I went back to school. I got a master's in positive leadership and strategy from IE in Madrid. And the reason why I did that was because they were using all these different sciences, positive psychology, behavioral science, neuroscience, and applying it to business, to leadership and teams. Wow. And I thought that's an additional tool that I can bring to my clients in addition to this positive mindset and the things I've learned about being an endurance athlete. So that's the, sort of the additional approaches and techniques that I use now and that I, that I talked about in the book. So it was really sort of a journey to get to the first one. And then after that, for me, it was one of those, okay, this is really interesting. It came, became more of a lifestyle. Because for many people, it's just, I'm going to do one, that's it. It's off, check, yeah. they check it off their list. And for me, I just decided, you know, this is really, this is hard, but it's, it's an amazing feeling when you finish. I was just uh, about to be far more cynical. Um, you said lifestyle. <laughs> I wanted to call it addiction. Is it now an it addiction? It is. A, yeah, I know. It's funny because that's what, after I finished my first one, my coach, I said, I said, I want to do this again. He said, just give in to the addiction. That's exactly what he called it. I was like, oh man, don't tell me it's an addiction. Um, but yeah, so, and it definitely colors the way I think about work and the way I think about life. And when something's really hard, I go, wait a minute, I'm an Iron Man. I can figure this out. That's sort of my <laughs> metaphor for like, you know, you know, getting through challenging situations. 
I mean, I have the utmost respect for you for doing that. A friend of mine just finished the, his first Ironman. Yeah. And he described the hype he had afterwards and he experienced. It was like he was full of adrenaline. Yeah. Paired with exhaustion, uh, exhaustion yeah. obviously. But he said, just call myself an Ironman. I think it should be called Iron Woman, by the way. Yeah. It was brilliant. He said, I can't wait to do it again. Yeah. You have just finished this after years of practicing. Yeah. Wow. And, and you do sacrifice a lot. So yes, my family hasn't seen me half the time they would usually see me, for example. Yeah, no, that's true. For after I did a two or three, I was coaching a couple of teams and we would tell in the very beginning when we kicked off the training, we, we would get the families involved because we would basically say, uh, you know, the last three months of training, it's eat, sleep, work and train. There's just no family, no social because you're, you're, you're working out three to four hours a day during the week. On the weekends, it's nine to 10 hours every Saturday and every Sunday to be able to get ready. So there's no time for like family, social. I mean, it's a little bit of exaggeration, but yeah, I mean, you make a lot of sacrifices, but it's a, it was a transformative experience for me, for sure, in terms of what I learned about myself and how I learned about, you know, relying on others. Cause you know, that's not my, you know, like you, that's not my thing. I don't like to ask for help. And I knew that I needed to ask for help. So as we get older, it gets harder, but. The pain is not yet painful enough. <laughs> I don't know, maybe it's getting there i don't know um every once in a while my trainer will say to me are you ready to retire i'm like no not yet because it just it's sort of it's like you said it's sort of like the lifestyle and it informs how i work with people yeah. and if all of a sudden i go you know i'm not gonna do this anymore i mean maybe i won't do like the real long distance ones i could do shorter ones but for me basically just to like not work out to not swim you know swim bike and run and to not do all that it just wouldn't feel right. I mean, well, do I have to do it in like a reduced capacity? Maybe, but I think I'll always try and find ways. And when I go to the races, I mean, there's men and women in their seventies and eighties who are like, you know, doing these races and doing them well and finishing them. So, wow. yeah. The uh, example you shared before about uh, not really seeing the family, you eat, sleep, train, yeah. right? And, and that's it. I, I think it, can be applied to the leadership space as well. Crisis mode, high pressure situation. Absolutely. And yeah. so on and forth. What was required in this situation in order to make sure you keep the relationship at least safe? You know, what, what did you need to do? Well, setting expectations was one. So, I mean, I didn't have, I don't have, you know, a big family, but some of the people that I trained or I trained with did. So it was basically saying in the beginning, this is something that's important to me, I, you know, uh, um, and I'm going to need support. I mean, I'm going to need, you know, I'm going to need to bring people into the conversation with me yeah. and to set those expectations early on. And so you need to have people knowing that you will need their help. And I think that's another part of this leadership is um, letting people know that you're going to need their support that you're going to need their help. You know, if you're a leader whose like company is like going through an acquisition or there's a lot of change going on, it's, it's not healthy for you to just sit there on your own and basically just say, okay, I'm going to figure this all out. You know, the better solution is to say, look, we have some challenging times coming ahead of us, yeah. right? But look at all we've accomplished together. And I'm confident we're going to make it through this time because of these things. So we're going to do this all together. I'm going to need your help in these areas. You know, I'm there for you. And that just creates a shared platform for success. And it creates a different, I think, expectation about why you need people's help, not because it's selfish, but just because, you know, in a leadership role, right, you're trying to accomplish these things together. And as you said, when you reach out to somebody and ask for help, it just changes the relationship. 
right away. I mean, one of my one of my clients that I write about in the book is younger, and uh, you know she runs a, a social impact venture and, and the whole sustainability function for a big tech company. And when all the sort of like um, after COVID and the George Floyd you know incident and all that happened last year, and so her CEO was saying, so what are we you know how, what's our response going to be? You know, because you know that's part of that's sort of what you know they look to her for. And she's, you know, she got her team together and said, well, let's talk about what are we going to do? I mean, what is our response going to be to the public? What are we going to tell employees about how, how we feel about this? What's our position going to be? How are we going to like support some of the organizations that are involved? Um, you know, she said there was like silence, like they, you know, they didn't have anything to offer her. They figured she had the answer. And she, at one point she just said, look guys, I have never seen anything like this before. I've never experienced anything like this before. I don't really know what to do, right? So let, let me hear from you. What do you think? What are your ideas? You know, what are your suggestions? We're going to figure this out together. And that changed the dynamic between her and them because they knew that she needed their help and their input and their ideas to craft this response. And she was willing to be vulnerable enough to say, you know what, uh, this is a whole new situation to me. I don't really, we don't, there's no playbook for this. So, you know, I need your help. And then from that point on, the conversations with them when things would come up where, you know, they were trying to figure out how to, what their position would be on something or, you know, how they were going to respond to a situation. It became much more of a collaborative effort than them just saying to her, what do you want us to do? I find it interesting because actually it reminds me of uh, one of my own experiences in, in the past. Well, I had a similar situation. I called it out with the team and it was a big part of the team that said yeah okay let's figure it out together and um, actually saw it as an opportunity there was a teeny tiny part of the team actually two people who were adamant that I should be the one who should find a solution who were still yeah. stuck like yeah. 20 30 years ago in, in yeah. that world tell me dear leader and then I expect or well, then I respect you as a leader yeah. as well and that was for me a huge struggle actually it lasted quite some time and, and required some very direct conversations to make clear that you know leadership doesn't mean you need to be the expert in everything and that right. even every crisis situation needs to have been experienced by you so um, encouraging them and at some point telling them that their support is needed yeah. I found that as a leader actually really challenging. Yeah. Not to be vulnerable, but to get that response. Yeah. And, and did that change the nature of your relationship with people on the team and, and how you handle situations going forward? With the remaining team, it did, um, yeah. because they, they noticed it, obviously, as well, that I'm standing up for myself and that it's absolutely okay not to know everything. With one of the people as well, in terms of it improved and she got on board with one, in the end, it didn't work out, quite honestly, mm. because there was a constant confrontation for the sake of confrontation. Ah, yeah. It went in that direction. Yeah. A leader I'm working with, right, a client of mine, and she uh, was just promoted into a very, very senior role. It's been kind of middle management before and um, was asked at the same time, you have to deliver 30% more uh, as your target, which was challenging already from yeah. last year. And now, yeah. given the, the world we live in, right, 30%, yeah. not quite easy. New team, additional team members, half of them starting to resign because of the ambiguity and yeah. whatnot. And what she actually did was also to be really transparent about the changes that are coming her way. But she also said was she knew she couldn't be quite as visible and present as she used to be with her old team because new challenges she needs to learn uh, team 
was much bigger and so on and so forth. So what she said was, I will be there as much as I can, but I need to tell you it's going to be less than it was before because I need to focus on that new area. Here is the number two, so to say, who you can also contact anytime and who will be there for you. And I thought it was really vulnerable, really open, you know, having a plan B in case. Didn't land with the team at all. They weren't happy at all because they wanted this continuous support from her and this personal her. yeah dedication yeah hmm. um if she was your client what would you explore with her well it sounds like uh, based on what you shared with me that that she made the right move i mean it's always a, you know it's a process to get people to feel like they can be more self-sufficient so you know as opposed to saying look i've always been here for you now i'm not going to be here for you as much because i have to go do these things but you can work with this, this person so maybe I mean, I understand that, you know, there's this new demand, but it feels a little abrupt to me to basically just say, look, I mean, here's the number two, but so maybe that she needs to modify a little bit her availability to say, you know, I'll st whatever it is, I'll still be involved in the staff meetings, you know, this new role that I'm in is going to require X, Y, Z. And so, you know, I, I may be coming back to you to ask for your support because you know i'm not sure that this is really important i'm going to need your help so that she's setting the expectations with them that they have a role and a value to contribute in this new role that she's doing and that she might tap into that so that they begin to feel like they have some agency in this process and she's not just abandoning them yeah um but it, i would try and find small like either with individuals or the team like small wins where they see that she's not leaving that she still needs them, that she's helping them to grow in the process so that they don't feel it's so black and white, like I have to go, you know, I'll be around, but not very much. So this person is your contact now. So have a nice life. I mean, I, I'm exaggerating, but I think I would try and find some way to keep that connection so that they don't disengage. Yeah. And, and on top of that, I would probably add that there is also a huge amount of value in exploring what's going on for them. Because if teams, as you explored, are already also going through significant change, right. a yep. relentless change uh, in this case, then every other change, large or small, might just be you know, the icing on the cake in the most negative sense and yep. might just be too much. And yeah. I think to understand that and always have these check-ins in terms of where is my team? How are they doing? How are they feeling? What's going on? And take the time to explore that with them yeah. is, is really, really key. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think she has the right intention, Yeah. but it, it can't be that black and white. And if she uses this as a lab to say, this is just an example of what we're all going to be experiencing. Yeah. I've been asked to do this. I'm going to be asking you to do different things. I mean, this is sort of like the way we're going to be operating. So let's work through this together and figure out how do we get better? How do we build our skills? You know, how do we, how do we figure out our path forward using this as an example? Because I'm guessing that, you know, that change where she was asked to take on a bigger role and produce more, you know, at some point she's going to be asked to do something else. She's going to need the team to do something else. And so it's sort of that entree into this is the new world we're living in. We're going to figure this out together. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I like that. Hey, Bobby, you have shared so much with us, some great top tips, some great examples, methods, and so on and so forth. I'm hugely grateful. If you would now need to give the one top tip to the listeners, which one would you choose? 
Uh, I'll go back to, uh, you know, when you asked me if I had known something when I was, you know, growing up in the business, I think that it's a scary thought to think that what you know doesn't count anymore. And I have a chapter in the book that talks about that. And people say, well, what do you mean? I've worked so hard to get to where I am. I mean, I'm an expert here. I'm known as a thought leader and everything. I'm not saying you have to jettison and totally ignore the skill sets and the accomplishments you have. But this environment requires a different leadership model. And so you have to, you know, keep hold on to that, but you have to really shift to think to really be successful going forward. I need to be more self-aware. I need to really understand my biases. I need to be willing to ask for help. I need to be vulnerable. And I think that's the biggest, that's the, for me, that's the keystone for people to get to this different leadership model. And it can be super powerful and beneficial, but as you and I have talked about, it's also scary and it can be hard, but I just t- tell leaders, just take the first step, you know, like you suggesting to this woman that you're working with, just tell people, look, you know, this is something new for me. You know, I'm going to figure it out, but I'm going to need your help. And I think that's the biggest step in this journey that I think that leaders can take. Cause I don't think it's going to, we're never going to go back to, Hey, you're an expert in sales and you have these great numbers. So you're going to become the new, you know, the new executive. That's part of it. But there's so many other things that people are looking for now in order for you to be successful, successful in this, through all this uncertainty. Absolutely. So I'm going to take my own advice. How's that? <laughs> ask for help, get people yes. on board to support you. Yes. Yes. Oh, thank you Absolutely. so much. Bobby, we want uh, to know more about you. So where can people find you? Where can people um, get the book as well? Uh, well, the books, you know, the books on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, uh, the best place to find me is on my website, which is bobbylaporte.com. And so there you can find out more about how I work with clients. I have lots of resources on there. I do a weekly video log on how to handle curveballs. There's, there's a newsletter. There's lots of resources there. So that's the best place for people to find me. And um, this has been delightful. I really have enjoyed talking to you, getting to know you. I've enjoyed the conversation and the whole format. So thank you so much, Kathleen, for including me. Thank it's been you great. So much. Great start to my day, finish to your day. Yeah, not yeah. quite, but yeah. um, it's, it's, we are on the way. <laughs> thank yeah. you so, so much. It's been a pleasure um, talking to you and learning so much from you. So thank you for sharing all your insights with You're us. You're welcome. Bobby. You're welcome. I appreciate it. And to all the listeners, let it sink in would be my recommendation. Take one or two of those steps Bobby shared with you and experiment with them. Try them out. See how people react. And most importantly, see what positive impact um, those steps might have on you as well and your well-being, your overall being really in this world. And let us know. Give your feedback uh, anytime. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. But for now, have a wonderful remaining week and speak to you very soon. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Legendary Leaders podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then remember to subscribe to the show either on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or on my website, www.kathleenmerkel.com. I would also love to hear from you to discover what topics you'd like to hear more about, what topics really resonated with you, and how you're enjoying the show in general. Please do leave your review on iTunes as well. It would mean the world to me. Thank you so much and speak to you again next time. Bye.